good morning, Journey. Man, I don't know about you, but like I'm excited to preach. I had not seen that video yet, and by the time it went off at 8.30, I thought, all right, like, let's go. That was an awesome bumper video. Lindsey Mack, um, I'm so proud of you uh, and your story, and you need to know we started our church 11 years ago because we thought people like you in our community would need it and would be able to find Jesus and serve him the rest of your life so others would know Jesus um, if we were just faithful. So thank you for sharing your story today. Did she not do an unbelievable job standing on this stage? Normally, we don't let her in this room um, because she runs these screens. That's her role at Journey. She makes everything that goes on the screen. So normally, she's in the back pressing buttons. So like, welcome to the light of day out here with the rest of us. We're really glad that you're here. Man, I'm so excited to be a part of Vision Month. Uh, for the next four weeks, we're just going to talk about what God is calling us to over the fall of ministry and into 2023. I want you to mark your calendars for Sunday, September 25th, because that is the Sunday after Vision Month. And one of my good friends in ministry, a guy by the name of Adrian Dupre, a globally known evangelist, is going to be here. And I've asked him to come that day and share a message that he's done all over the world, uh, mainly in Promise Keepers Stadium rallies with 100,000 men called Four Chairs. And I promise you that you will not leave September 25 the same way that you came, and you will know exactly where you are spiritually by the end of Sunday, September 25, if you're here that day. You need to be here, and if you have any Christian friends who are just caught in the drift of the last two years, you got to bring them with you that day. It's going to be one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful day in the history of our church, Sunday, September 25. I promise you, you will not regret being here and watching what God does that day. Uh, I think one of the things I'm most excited about as we get into Vision Month is our week of prayer. Uh, we're starting a week of prayer really today. It begins tomorrow kind of in earnest at 6 a.m. called Breakthrough Faith. For those of you planning to be a part of our week of prayer, before you leave today, make sure you grab your prayer journal from the Connection Center. You'll be able to take this. This runs actually through the end of the year with weekly prayer guides, pr uh, weekly prayer topics. For those of you watching online, you, you do church with us from kind of somewhere else in the world. You can download this prayer guide to have it ready for tomorrow morning at www.takethejourney.cc forward slash prayer guide. But if you're in the room, I want you to pick this up. And here's my challenge to you. Here's, here's what I'm begging you to do. Come tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Just give me one day. You do not have to plan to come back. You can make up your mind at 7.02 as you're driving out of the parking lot whether or not it was worth it for your faith and whether or not you need to return. But if you have hit a point in your faith where you need some spiritual breakthrough, there's just something you always seem to deal with, a wall you always seem to hit. Jesus said there's some things in your life you don't get through without really praying through them. This is going to be our week to do that. So please grab your prayer journal before you go. We'll have the coffee hot and ready by 5.30 a.m., two worship songs, about a 10-minute devotional, and then we'll send you to begin your breakthrough faith prayer journey um, over the next week. It's going to be incredible, 6 to 7 a.m. every day that you can be here. You can watch online if you cannot be here live. Saturday morning at 9 a.m., we'll serve Chick-fil-A for breakfast afterwards to just kind of celebrate us all praying together for a week. It's going to be really incredible. Let me also say this before you leave. Um, you have to check out the groups fair if you do not have spiritual community right now. There were in Scripture six what I call suicidal prophets. Uh, Moses, Elijah, Samson, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, Jonah, and Job, all at one point in their communication with God asked if he would kill them or if they could die. They were in the will of God doing the work of God, but they either were alone or felt alone, and it was just too overwhelming for them. You need to understand you are not meant to do your spiritual journey alone. There is no place in the 66 books of the Bible where two or more believers say, let's quit together. They're always alone when they want to quit. You never find two or three Christians together who make a pact to hang it up spiritually. Because community helps you be strong when your faith is weak. Please don't let another semester go by without plugging into a men's group, ladies group, couples group, morning group, evening group, whatever. Find your spiritual community. It will strengthen 
your faith like crazy, like I can promise you that. Um, as we get into Vision Month, there, our Vision Month is going to be based on our mission statement. Uh, we've had more than 550 Sunday morning services since our church started in September of 2011. We've never gathered on a Sunday morning without telling you why we're here. Our church exists to see people far from God become passionate Christians who make a difference in the world. Like we are not just here hanging out. We are on a mission and this is our mission. It has three big components. I'll teach kind of on the last one on September 18th this year, or on the first one, uh, being a church that reaches people who don't know Jesus yet. Um, Really, every biblical church is called to do the middle part to help people become passionate Christians. Uh, I would go as far as to say my ecclesiology, which means my theology of the church, would say that if as a church, your church is not targeted towards helping Christians become disciples who make disciples, I don't know that I would call you a church biblically because that is the job of a church to help Christians become disciples who make disciples. But probably my personal spiritual bent, the DNA that God has placed in my soul is the last part of that mission statement, to make a difference in the world. Um, I am a way more do it than talk about it type of guy. It's just the way that I've always been in my faith. I am a person of movement in faith and life. I want to move. I want to measure it. I want to say, did it work? I want to do it again. I want to do more. I want God to use me to make an impact. It's just how I'm shaped. Um, In college, my football coach was a guy from Brooklyn named Sam Ritigliano who used to always say to our team, because our team every day got checked into class and we got checked into bed at night, even though we were 18 through 22-year-old men, and even though some of us did really well in the classroom, I'm telling you, at our 8 a.m. class, there was a GA standing outside the door looking in the window, checking to see if we were in our seats. And he would tell us, I trust all you guys, but I verify. I trust, but I verify. And he would say this, because I'm, I'm from Missouri and I need you to show me. I grew up in Ohio, went to college in Virginia. I didn't know what Missouri's nickname was, but I always liked that saying. I didn't know why he was saying it, but I thought, that's a cool saying. I'm from Missouri, and I want you to show me. When I moved to Missouri and found out it was the show me state, I thought, maybe I'm from Missouri too, because that's how I like to do things. You tell me you follow Jesus? show me. You tell me you love your spouse? Show me. You tell me you're discipling your kids? Show me. You tell me Christians should serve the community? Show me. It's just the bit that I have. So we measure movement at our church. Like God calls Christians to make a difference in the world. Are we doing global missions? Yes. Yes, we can prove that. God says Christians should help and see hurting people in their community. Is our church doing that? Yes, we can prove that. God tells Christians they should love their neighbors. Are we doing that? I hope so. I hope we're doing that okay. God tells Christians they should be salt and light in the community. Are we doing that? I hope we're doing that. But one of the most valuable ways God says you can know you're on mission. The conversation we're going to have today is trying to answer the question, how do you become great for God? A group of young men went to Jesus and they said, how do we become great in the kingdom of God? Jesus would say, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, here's what you need to measure your influence and impact on the next generation. That tells me whether you're on mission with me. How is your impact on the next generation? As we start Vision Month, that's where we're going to start. Our impact, not just on the next generation of people physically under the age of 18, but on people in our community who are not yet Christians, who are going to become Christians, the next generation of Christians, what is our impact going to be on them? It's hard, I should tell you, to impact the next generation. Even those who somewhat walk with Jesus. Christian told the story about his conversation with his little girl, Karis. I had a conversation with my little girl, Casey, who's 18. She'll be 19 in a few months. Um, And she said to me this week that let me know how much further I need to go in my impact of the next generation. She said, Dad, I haven't learned everything from the office. Um, And by that, she meant the Michael Scott office show on television. Um, Dad, I haven't learned everything in life from the office. I've learned some things from the Bible. Um, And I thought... Okay, like we've got, a, we've, got a ways, we've got a ways to go. If that's like my daughter's statement after being born and raised in our church, I haven't learned everything in life from the office. I've learned some from the Bible. It's like, we got to do better, Danielle. Like whatever we're doing, we, like we got to do better. Um, so as we get into today's text, we're going to ask ourselves, how are we doing when it comes to the next generation in our faith? Some really valuable things to see. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Matthew chapter 18. If you want to go ahead and turn there, you can grab your bulletin and take out your notes so that you can follow along there, uh, or even maybe fire up your Journey Church International app. It'll be easy to follow along digitally 
if you want to do that. We always pray before we jump into Scripture at our church, but we're actually going to start our week of breakthrough prayer today. So we always pray God speaks to our hearts, but we're going to pray differently today. Here's what I want you to pray for as we get ready to pause in prayer. I want you to think about that area in your life that you need breakthrough. For some of you, it comes to you really quickly because your marriage has not been good. Um, Because you don't know what you're going to do with your current financial plan. Uh, Because you've got a strained relationship with somebody who used to be really, really close to you. Because the diagnosis just came for somebody um, close to you or maybe you yourself. Like, what's the area in your life where Jesus keeps trying to move you and you just can't get there? I'm going to ask you all this week to begin to pray about seeing breakthrough spiritually in that area. As you lean into God. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Just take that deep breath to let your soul settle in this moment. And if you have any area in your life, family, relationships, work, health, any area at all where you desperately need God to break through, would you right now in your private prayer time acknowledge that to God? Not out loud, but just to God. He already knows what it is, but it'll do something for you to acknowledge it. And ask him this week to begin to break through in that area. Jesus, you told us last week that there are some areas in our faith life where we only experience your power and your breakthrough through prayer. So God, as a congregation here and scattered abroad through video, I pray that you would allow us to experience as much breakthrough this week as the time we put in in prayer. I pray, Lord, you would draw our hearts to what it could look like to experience true breakthrough once and for all in the areas where we need help And God, I pray that that would drive us to our knees Monday through Saturday this week so that we might begin to see the God of the universe working and how he's working on our behalf. God, as we open your word today, show us what it looks like to be great in your kingdom. That's our prayer. And we ask it today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So Matthew chapter 18, we're going to read it in three different sections today. The question Jesus is going to answer is, what does it look like to be great in the kingdom of God? That is the question that appears to be asked, but it really wasn't the question asked. I'll kind of give you that in a moment. But if we were to start posing that question for Jesus, Jesus, what does it look like to be great in your kingdom? Jesus would say, number one, there are some lessons that you need to learn from the next generation. The next generation has some things to teach us spiritually. Jesus, what does it look like to be great in your kingdom? Jesus would say, look at the next generation. They have some things to teach us spiritually about how they do faith. Matthew 18, 1 says this, at that time, you might circle those three words or underline them. I'll come back to them in a minute. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him, placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change... And become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So Jesus is answering the question that should have been asked. The question that should have been asked was, Jesus, what does it take to be great in the kingdom of heaven? That's the question that should have been asked, and it may have even appeared to have been asked as you just read that little text of Scripture, but that is not the question that was being asked. Because those three little words at that time puts this conversation in context. And these three little words at this time tell us that the question being asked was really this, who's going to be in charge when you're gone? That's the question the disciples were asking. In some Bible translations, it says, at that hour, at that hour, They ask, well, what was the hour? We learned last week in Matthew chapter 17 that Jesus was on a journey from Caesarea Philippi to the cross in Jerusalem. 
You might remember we put that map up and we drove, drew a straight arrow and we said this is the only time Jesus had a non-stop journey in his three years of ministry. He's going from Caesarea Philippi where he said, I am the Messiah and I'm going to start a church. And he's headed straight to Jerusalem. And the only place during that time he'll sleep the same place three nights in a row is in a cold tomb outside Jerusalem. He is marching to the cross. And on his way to the cross, he tells his disciples for the third time, when we get there, they're going to kill me. They're going to bury me, but then I'll raise from the dead. And we read last week that the disciples were filled with grief when he told them this. It was in that hour that they're having this discussion. When we compare and contrast the books of Mark and Luke with this, we know the disciples literally pulled away after Jesus said, I'm going to die, and begin to argue amongst themselves who would get to be in charge when he was dead. Luke actually tells us they didn't come to, the, to Jesus with this question, but he came to them and said, hey, what are y'all talking about over there? And they were like, uh, who gets, who gets to be in charge when you're dead? That's the conversation we're having. And Jesus says, time out. Time out, let's talk about this. And it says in verse 2, he called a little child to himself. The word in the Greek is pedion. It's a word that means a very young child, as young as an infant, but in this case, probably a toddler. Because in Mark 9, 36, it says that Jesus took the child and he pulled him into his lap. So it's it's either an infant or a toddler at the oldest, but it's probably a two or three-year-old little kid. And the disciples are trying to figure out, okay, Jesus is out. Who's in charge then? And Jesus says, okay, at this point, none of you, if that's how you think. And we know he's in a house with Peter. So maybe this is one of Peter's kids. Maybe this is one of Peter's nieces or nephews. He calls the child over, pulls him up in his lap, and says, like, unless you become like this little child, like, you're not even going to get into the kingdom. Look what he says in verse 3. He said, truly I tell you, unless you change... Those are three words you should underline because there's a lot of talk in American Christianity today that you don't need to change. God loves you just as you are, accepts you just as you are. God would never want to change anything about you. Um, That must not be the Jesus of the Bible because the Jesus of the Bible today says unless you change. In another translation, the word is repent, but that's what repent means. I used to be this way and now I move this way. So Jesus says unless you change and become like little children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you know the most frequent term used in the New Testament to describe followers of Jesus? Anyone want to guess it? Children. Children of God. The most frequent term used for followers of Jesus in the New Testament is children of God. But sadly, we don't start there. Um, spiritually, we often talk about people growing up, but actually we need to grow down because usually we start spiritually with a pretty high view of ourselves. And then as we mature, we become like little children. This is how it happened for the apostle Paul. When you read the 13 letters that the apostle Paul, an evangelist 2000 years ago, who started churches all over the Mediterranean basin is you read how he described himself in the early letters that he wrote to Christians. He said, Hey, my name's Paul and I'm the least of the apostles, which basically meant this. There are 12 guys that are really important in the church. I'm number 13. So I'm not the most important, but I am on the varsity and a pretty important guy. He would have been like the Michael Scott of the New Testament at that point. I'm a pretty big deal. Um, So like he started by telling people I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not most important, but I am very important. He, He then, the next time in the chronology of his writing that we hear him write, he says, hey, I'm Paul. And he said, I am the least of the saints. Which meant this, when I look at my life and I look at the world, there's a division between people who follow Jesus and people who don't follow Jesus. And Like, I'm probably like the worst Christian in the world, but at least I'm better than people who don't follow Jesus. I'm the least of all the Christians. But like, as he's dying, he writes a letter to his friend Timothy. And he said, Timothy, after a lifetime of reflection, he said, when I look at my life, he said, I am the worst of sinners. When I think of anyone who ever lived in the world before me or after me or with me, I'm worse than all of them. He didn't grow up, he grew down. 
He grew to this childlike faith. He grew to this little toddler position that basically said, Timothy, I used to think a lot of myself and then a little of myself. And now I realize, had Jesus not invited me up into his lap, I got nothing. He became a child spiritually. And Jesus said, you need to change the way you think. And you need to become little children spiritually. How do little children, toddlers specifically, how do we view them? How do they view themselves? Very simply. They're very simple. They're very dependent. Matter of fact, they're totally dependent on other people. They're probably pretty helpless. They're unpretentious. They don't think a lot of themselves. Don't compare themselves to others. They're unambitious. And they're trusting. And I struggle with this graphic that's on the screen right now. Because as I look at those words, spiritually, I have become the first three. Spiritually, it's very simple for me. I just put everything in Jesus' hands. I am totally dependent upon Jesus. I am helpless spiritually without Jesus. But the words unpretentious, not even aware of myself spiritually, unambitious, don't desire things spiritually, trusting, it's not me yet. I need to grow down. Not grow up. I need to grow down. It's interesting, Leon Morris, who is a commentator who writes, you know, on the New Testament documents, says being an adult kind of destroys your faith. Adults like to assert themselves. Adults like to rely on their own strength and their own wisdom. This attitude is impossible for those who wish to enter the kingdom of God. Like people who think it's all on them, they're not going to do really well in the kingdom of God. So Jesus not only doesn't answer the question, who's the greatest? He doesn't answer that question. Jesus says, like, listen, you not only are not the greatest, you can't even be on the team unless you put it all in my hands. You can't even get into the kingdom. That's the message that Jesus is giving. And there are a lot of us in here who have let Jesus take the wheel of our life, but we're a backseat driver. Have any of you ever been annoyed by a backseat driver? Not the backseat driver that sits in the two seats. When you have three in the backseat and one ends up in the middle, the seatbelt doesn't fit real good. So they just kind of lean up and their head is in the front seat the entire time. Any of you ever had that backseat driver? You know, a lot of us are like that spiritually. Oh, Jesus is at the wheel, but hang on, Jesus, don't get too close to that guy. And Jesus is at the wheel, but hey, maybe you saw the speed, like get in the left lane and pass that guy. And Jesus is at the wheel, but you know, you're like you're almost out of gas. Like we are so constantly offering Jesus advice on our spiritual journey. Jesus is at the wheel, but it's like, should we stop and get breakfast? Because Chick-fil-A stopped serving breakfast like at 1030. Like Jesus is at the wheel, but we are constantly giving input. See, Christians are not supposed to be backseat drivers. We're supposed to be car seat passengers. See, when you're in a car seat, you're not even looking forward. When you're in a car seat, you don't even know where you're going. When you're in a car seat, you're not even paying attention to the journey. Like toddlers, babies who would be in the car seat, they are so totally dependent and trustworthy on the person driving that they're literally not even aware that they're on the journey. They're just aware that they're with someone they can trust. And Jesus said, that's what you need to be like spiritually. Too many of you are sitting in the back seat, leaning in my ear, trying to tell me how your spiritual life needs to go. Why don't you just relax and become like a little child spiritually? That's what it looks like to thrive and have a great experience in the kingdom of God. Then he says in verse 5, whoever welcomes one such child in my name, like whoever lives like that, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. The Greek word for welcome there is the word dekomai. It literally means to receive an honored guest and to meet their needs with special attention and kindness. It means literally to treat them like they are the honored guest of your life and make sure to pay attention to all of their needs and treat them with special kindness. You know the coolest thing about this graphic that Jesus asked us to treat people with? It's how he treats us. See, the only reason you and I are in the kingdom of God is because Jesus received us as his guests. 
The only reason you and I are in the kingdom of God is because Jesus called us up into relationship. The only reason we are in the kingdom of God is because Jesus showed us special attention and paid attention to us when we were not paying attention to him. The only reason we are in a relationship with Jesus is because he has been so kind to take the punishment for everything we've done wrong and to live the perfect life that we couldn't live so we could have the reward that only he deserves. Like, that's what Jesus has done to us. So Jesus says, I want you to treat people like I have treated you. It's interesting, the golden rule of Christianity is do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. But the golden rule of faith is do unto others as Jesus has done unto you. Welcome and receive them with special attention, with kindness. Pay attention to their needs. Jesus said, this is what it looks like to learn from the next generation of faith. And it's interesting because in this chapter, we're going to hear the next generation of faith called little children. We're going to hear them called lost sheep. We're going to hear them called indebted servants. The cool thing about Matthew 18, it's the first entire chapter in all the gospels devoted to church life, Christians doing Christianity together. It's the first one where we just see a picture of Christian community and the struggle in Christian community. And Jesus said, Christian community is just seeing everyone like I see you. You can learn a lot from the faith of the next generation. But he said, you can also learn what it looks like to be great in the kingdom, number two, by realizing how much you have to teach the next generation. Because you learn what it looks like to really live in childlike faith by looking at the next generation. But you also learn something about where you are with Jesus when you look at what your life is teaching the next generation. And let me give you the two applications of next generation because it really applies to both. One of the applications would be people under the age of 18. Like literally the next physical generation, people between the ages of birth and 18. The the other application of next generation is people of any age who have just become Christians. The next generation of faith. So we have a man who watches our 830 service every week from Iowa who just became a Christian in his 80s. He's in his 80s, but he is in the next generation of faith. Some of you are thinking, I don't have any kids. I I don't have any influence on the next generation. Whoa, 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 whoa. If you know anyone who's been a Christian less than you, you have influence on the next generation spiritually. That's what this text means. That's what Jesus is trying to say to us. That's what Jesus is trying to show us. So what do we learn about our influence, what we can teach the next generation? Look at verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones... That could be young person or new Christian. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause the next generation or new Christians to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. So he says, I want to be great for God. He says, always remember your example to the next generation and what you teach them. I don't know if you read the story this week about Whitey Bulger. Whitey Bulger was a mobster who was... Uh, indicted for and then convicted of 19 murders in the kind of 80s and 90s. He literally ran a mob. He was a mob kingpin in Massachusetts who was on the run from the feds for 20 years. And then he was finally arrested. He was moved to a maximum security prison in West Virginia. And he was in that prison for less than 12 hours before the inmates there killed him um, with a padlock attached to the end of a belt. Took him six minutes. And this week, the three men that killed him were convicted of that crime of killing this hitman who killed people in the mob style that we can only imagine. Like, take all the movies you've ever seen. That's, what, that's who this guy was. That's how he killed people. Um, I bring him to your attention because Jesus goes straight mobster hitman in Matthew chapter 18. I don't know if you realized it. But Jesus said, if you find people who are causing the next generation to stumble spiritually... Put some concrete blocks around them and bury them in the Hudson. Like that, like he says that, but worse. He says, find a large millstone, hang it around their neck, throw them into the ocean. 
see how long they swim. Like he goes straight mobster here. This text changed for me the first time I went to Israel in 2013. Because I was eating at one of my favorite little pizza joints in Israel, a place called Cardo Pizza. The Cardo was the main street, the main vein of the old city. It's why we call it cardiac. It's the heart of the city. There's a little pizza shop there, and we were eating pizza. And right outside the pizza shop was this little sculpture. I want you to throw it on the screen if, if you would. And, and literally, I got it from the table. I said, what is that? And the guy said, just like without thinking about it, he said, oh, that's a, that's a millstone that was used to grind wheat. And I said, wait a minute, like a large millstone? He's like, yeah, they had little ones that were kind of handheld you use in your house, and then you have the large ones that animals use. That's a large millstone. And I said, wait a minute, that's what Jesus said to tie around someone's neck and throw them in the ocean if they cause like the next generation of Christians and kids to sin? And he was like, yep, that's it. And I said, here, take my picture with it like it's around my neck. Don't tie, like, don't tie anything up. But I want, I want to be able to remember forever how seriously Jesus takes causing the next generation to sin spiritually. He goes straight mobster. See, the the point, the emphasis that Jesus is trying to make here, the question spiritually is is not, are you setting an example? The question spiritually is, are you setting a good example? Because you are setting an example. Every day, if you call yourself a Christian by the way you live your faith, someone who's trying to figure out how to become a Christian is learning from you, or someone under the age of 18 who you have some kind of spiritual influence over is learning from you. So the question is not, am I setting an example? The question is, am I setting a good example with the way that I am living my life? Jesus said, you want to be great for God? You always have to remember what your life is teaching the next generation. And folks, i got to be honest with you. My generation has not done a good job. Uh, I told our students at camp, and by the way, students, it's like so good to see you here. Um, we went like 50 Sundays in this room without any students being in this room. Um, and for you guys to come back to camp and keep coming to church means the world to me that you're here. But I told these students, my generation, parents 30 to probably 55, 30 to 50 maybe, my generation has produced... Um, the weakest Sunday gathering of Christians in the history of American Christianity, my generation. Um, those of you who are 30 to 50, 55 in your parents, the, the way that we have done church has probably caused the Sunday gatherings of our generation to be weaker than they've ever been before. There are two primary things we are dealing with that nobody before us has dealt with like us. One is the multi-billion dollar industry of kids' sports that runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every Sunday of the world. Like, we're dealing with some... Those of us who are 50 did not grow up playing club sports like our kids play club sports. So we're dealing with, like, does our kid get kicked off the team or do they go play sports? So we're dealing with this thing that our parents never had to deal with. We're also dealing with the invention of online church which actually is an oxymoron because the word church means gathering. It doesn't mean service. So really this is an online service, not an online church because for it to be a church, the word ecclesia means assembled together. Like to be church, you got to be together with people. And I'm glad you're watching from wherever you are and if you're out of town. If this is the only way for you to be in service today, I'm glad that you're here. But don't think that this replaces church because church is not a service. Amen? Like church is a thing that comes together. So like my parents and your parents, the generation 65 to 90, really there were two types of people in the world. There were Christians who went to church on Sunday, and then there were non-Christians who didn't go to church on Sunday. There's never been a generation before my generation of people who considered themselves Christians who didn't go to church, but now we have that. And I think it's confusing our kids and our neighbors and our communities. Because now you can live in a Christian family and come to church 10 or 15 times a year. You're like, oh, we're a Christian family, but we come to church when there's nothing more important going on. What I'm beginning to realize as I talk to parents my age whose kids are 23, 24, 25... It's a Christian, when they were young, we took them to church if there was nothing more important going on. Now they don't go to church at all if there's anything else going on. We didn't teach them that, like, this is, this is what Christians do. 
And man, our life is a mess. We've not set a good example. We're not the first generation to do that. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews tells the church, like, please don't give up meeting together as some are already doing. But you keep getting together on Sunday because that's how you encourage one another. And even more like as we get ready for Jesus to come back. So one of the primary purposes of church on Sunday is to encourage the soul of the next generation. So let me ask you, those of you whose kids are playing competitive sports, are their souls encouraged at the end of every Sunday afternoon? Do they know that you and that God and a group of people in their life love them more? Let me tell you what's probably more important and more encouraging to a young person's soul than being in church. Probably if they win the tournament and if they get the winning hit or they score the winning goal and if they can post it on social media and if the right friends and the right number of friends like it enough and leave enough comments at the right time, that might be really encouraging to them. Anything short of that? There are probably not a whole lot of Sundays where people go to bed feeling better than they did when they got up, like they would have if they'd have been around Jesus. And we've got other things that we deal with that generations before didn't. We've got this world of streaming everything now. Like, like when I was younger, to be able to have a, tel- a, like a program on your TV that showed nudity, you had to have a satellite in your backyard that could talk to Jupiter. Like remember, like, remember those big satellites? Like, you would know. You literally could drive through your town and be like, they got HBO, they got HBO, there's where the perverts live. You're like, wait, I was just watching Inside the NFL. Like, yes, but your son was watching Cinemax, like, when you went to bed. Like, like you literally, it took, it took so much effort to get something inappropriate on your TV screen in your home. Now, literally, every time I turn on my television, every time I turn on my television, for some reason, the first thing they ask me to push on and to watch is Game of Thrones, which I've never watched. And if you've researched it as a Christian, you know the amount of nudity, sexual depravity, and sexual abuse in that show is nothing that a Christian would ever watch with their Christian kids sitting next to them. Like, literally, it's the first thing on my TV every time I turn it on. It's one button. The streaming services of the music that we listen to. Anybody remember being in high school when you had to have your driver's license and you had to be 18 to go buy a CD with explicit lyrics that was marked with explicit lyrics? Now when you stream music on Spotify, you actually have to ask for it not to be explicit because normal is explicit. Like everything in the world is harder now than it's ever been. What you receive on your social media feed, your kids know. What you post on your social media feed, your kids know. What you forward on your social media feed and laugh at, your kids know. Like, are you setting a good example? The question is not, am I setting an example? The question is, am I setting a good example? Jesus took a pretty hard-line stance here. He kind of reiterated what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. If your eye causes you to sin, take it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And he basically said, if there are things in your life that are causing other people to sin, drown them. Remove them completely and permanently from your life. Look around your entire life and say, is there anything in my life that is causing other people to not follow Jesus well? Jesus says, drown it. Get rid of it. Send it where you can't get it. Man, I remember in sixth grade, my mom and dad finally bought me a pair of Oakleys. I'd been asking my whole life. In fifth grade, they broke down and bought me a pair of Jordan tennis shoes. In sixth grade, they bought me Oakleys. Anyone remember the Oakleys where you could change out the sides? I had these cool Oakleys in like six or seven different colors that I could put on the side. And we were at a 4th of July party at one of my uncle's houses on a boat. And I looked into the lake and they fell off my head and into the lake. And they are there to this day. And it still makes me a little sad because like those are my first pair of Oakleys. Like when you drown something, it goes away and it goes away forever. You see, I got some things in my life that probably cause people to think poorly of Jesus. Get rid of them. If you got things in your life that cause you to sin, Jesus says you got to throw them away. You got to be willing to get rid of anything necessary so that you can stay close to Jesus. And part of doing that is realizing how much it impacts the next generation and taking it really, really seriously. This changed for me forever in 1998. In just a moment that God got my attention, I was a Christian, not living as a Christian. I was playing football at Liberty University. They asked me to come share my testimony at some youth camp. So I got up and I talked about what Christianity should be, but not what mine was. 
And literally as I was walking off the stage, I felt like God said this to me. Hey, that was pretty good, um, but here's the deal. If you ever open your mouth publicly and tell someone you're a Christian again, you better act like it. So here's your choices. Never tell anyone you're a Christian if you're going to live like you're living. Or live like a Christian if you're going to say it. Those are your only two choices. Either quit telling people because you're being a really bad example. Or do it right and tell people who you are. Some of you need to hear that message today. Stop telling the world you're a Christian if you're going to act like you're acting. Or change your actions so they can see a true picture of who Jesus is. Say, I want to be great for God. You got to realize what you're teaching the next generation. It's something. It's always something. But then for Journey and Vision Month, number three, we got to realize why we're reaching the next generation. Why is it so important to us? It's important to us because it's important to God. In verse 10, Jesus says, see that you don't despise one of these little ones. In other translations, it says, look down on. For I tell you that the angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. It's interesting because Jesus said, God is always aware of the face of the kids and so are the angels. Some commentators in the past said that this means that every child has their own guardian angel. John Calvin said probably every child does not have a guardian angel. Probably what Jesus is trying to say is all of heaven is focused on little children spiritually. God is aware of it and so are the angels. So is God's people. Is God's church also aware of it? All of heaven is aware of how children are doing spiritually. So Jesus told his disciples, you be aware of how children are doing spiritually too. And then he tells a little different parable with the same metaphor that he gives in Luke 15. In Luke 15, he tells the parable of the lost sheep, 99 sheep who know and are connected to God, one who's not. And he's like the shepherd goes and he helps them. Here, similar metaphor, but different meaning. You got a hundred Christians, a hundred young Christians. And one of these young Christians begins to wander off. Jesus says, this one lost sheep, it is in an extremely dangerous situation. If it wanders off by itself, not able to protect itself, an extraordinary danger from everything around it. Because sheep have no ability to defend themselves. They are not a natural predator of anything but grass. Like a sheep on its own, big time trouble. So Jesus says when older Christians realize that younger Christians have drifted, once they make sure they're on the hill, good pasture, safe pasture, they go after it because they can't take care of themselves. Folks, I want to be honest with you. I'm so glad I was a teenager of the 1990s and not the 2020s. I don't want to have to do what these kids do today to walk with Jesus. Their world is so much harder there used to be spots in our community where Christian families could send their kids to which would really take care of them with a Judeo-Christian ethic. And now those exact same places not only do not protect and provide a Judeo-Christian ethic, but they attack it and they're trying to change it. Man, I'm glad I was a teenager in the 90s and not the 2020s. It's a hard world. And as a church, we always got to be aware of that sheep who's just drifting and we got to go get it. Jesus said, you got to be a diligent shepherd. What is a diligent shepherd? As soon as the 99 are safe, they're off to make sure they get the one who's in danger. If the most frequent term used in the New Testament for Christians is children, one of the most frequent metaphors for God in the entire Bible is shepherd. That God is a shepherd who continues to track and take care of his people. And here we see a diligent shepherd. This December, our entire sermon series as a church will be called The Shepherd. Every Sunday in December, heading into Christmas, we'll study the 23rd Psalm together. And we'll just look at the love of God and how he loves and provides for his people as we kind of walk towards Christmas weekend at Journey. But you need to understand, shepherds have to care about sheep. How many of you teared up a little bit like me when we started singing that old hymn at the end of our worship set. Did any of you grow up in a church that sang hymns or like, am I the only one? Any of you grow up in a church that had Sunday school 
Wednesday night Bible study. That's the church that I grew up in. Singing hymns, Sunday school, Wednesday night Bible study. Um, I loved it, and I still love it. It, it holds a special place in my soul. When Hannah started singing that song, I just started weeping because it's like 44 years of Christianity were just kind of churning in my heart. Do you know why people don't do church like that anymore? Do you know why most churches don't do Sunday school anymore? You know why most churches don't have Wednesday night Bible study anymore church-wide? Anybody aware of why that shifted in the history of the church about 25 years ago? The studies on the next generation of the church were that when they turned 18, they would leave the church. Because for the most part, the church considered kids under the age of 18 a childcare problem to be dealt with. And what they realized is if you provided adults the chance to get more Bible for themselves or to serve children, they'd always choose themselves. And if you provided them another chance to go to church on Wednesday night or serve the teenagers, They'd always choose themselves. And they realize we are never going to reach the next generation unless we pull all these opportunities away from adults. In Ezekiel chapter 34, Ezekiel chastises the shepherds of Israel because he said, you're selfish shepherds. And here's the picture he gave. He said, not only do you go get your water first, but when you drink, you stand in the stream so that when the rest of the sheep come, they're drinking dirty water. You don't care about anybody but yourself. We lived in a world of church the last 30 years that was just focused on, for the most part, adult discipleship. And they could never get anyone to help kids because the adults not only wanted water, they wanted to stand in it while they were drinking it. So churches like ours said, we got to change the game. Today we'll minister probably to around 400 elementary school students. It'll take nearly 200 volunteers to do that who might not be back there if they had a chance to go to a Sunday school class after church. On Wednesday, we'll minister to 300, 350 teenagers. It'll take more than 100 adults to minister to them who may not be there if we had Wednesday night church service. We are a church that has said we're going to see the next generation, and we're going to leverage our church to serve them. I asked Pastor Scott this week, how much of our ministry budget is spent on kids under the age of 18? And he said in 2022, it'll be about 46%. But it needs to pass 50 in 2023 for us to do what God has called us to do Put the next generation first. See, one of the ways we're going to know whether our church was great in the kingdom is when after we're all gone, if there's still a church here and not a YMCA that has bought our building so that people in the community can come work out. That will only happen if we put the kids first. So as we close today, my question to you would be, what has God said to you? What do you need to do about it? Let me say this real clearly. Um, At Journey, our goal is not to serve the next generation. At Journey, our goal is to serve Jesus. And when we ask him, what do you want us to do? He says, serve the next generation. So we're not serving them for them. We're serving them for Jesus. And Jesus says, this is how my church works. So as we close today, inside your bulletin is this little card. I want to tell you what my goal is as we get into the fall of 2022. It just says family ministry volunteer interest. Every year on Back to School Sunday, we remind adults in our church that at Journey, it's, a lot of it's about the kids. Because it's about Jesus, it's got to be about the kids. My prayer as we've come into today is that we get 22 new volunteers in our kids' ministry and 22 new volunteers in our student ministry. 22 in 2022 as we kick off the 2022-2023 school years. If you have the ability on Sunday once a month to serve the next generation, help them see who Jesus is. Give us your information. Give it a shot for a couple months. If you have the ability a couple Wednesday nights a month to come hang out with teenagers and love them like Jesus would love them, give us your information. And let's together be a church full of people, great for God, because we have the faith of a child. We have good example on the next generation of our faith, and we're always concerned with reaching them. Amen? As we close today, question, what's God said to you? What do you need to do to respond? Would you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. All over the room, but hearts are open. What has God said to you and what do you need to do about it? If you're here today and you would not consider yourself a Christian, 
Because before today, you've not ever realized that you've been invited into relationship with Jesus. He's invited you to come sit with him. Please hear today us saying that Jesus loves you like Christian Gracia said earlier. And he is inviting you into relationship with him to be forgiven of your past and directed in your future. All you have to have is enough childlike faith to say, okay, I don't understand that, but I'll choose to believe it. And I'll try to lean into Jesus. If you've never done that, you can do that this morning. Scripture says you believe in your heart and then you confess with your mouth, you pray so that you might be saved. So if you believe today that Jesus is calling you into relationship and with a childlike faith, you want to accept that, then from your heart to heaven, not out loud, but just from your heart to heaven, pray something like this. Just say, God, I need you. Just repeat it after me. God, I need you. So today I receive your invitation of relationship and with a childlike faith I say yes to Jesus forgive me of the sin of my past cleanse me from the mess inside my life heal me of my hurts and lead me into my future today by faith which means I don't understand it all but I believe it with childlike faith. Today, I want to commit to follow Jesus and become a Christian. If you just prayed with me in just a second, I'll let you know how you can tell us so that we can begin to walk with you on your spiritual journey. With heads still bowed and eyes so close, Christians in the room, what has God said to you today? Has he spoken to you like he's spoken to me that you're a backseat driver, not a car seat rider. And you need to get out of his ear and learn to trust. You have too much ambition. Are you pretentious to aware yourself? If you need to grow down, not grow up, but grow down into a little child, just tell God, ask him to help you. Maybe you're here today and you realize your life, how you live, what you watch, what you allow into your home, setting a bad example. It's not making you a bad person, but it's setting a bad example. Ask God to help you be better. Ask him to forgive you, and then ask him to help you to be better. And if God is leading your heart to serve and disciple and love and lead the next generation, if you like, if when I held up that card, your heart said, this is for you, then would you make a commitment to check that box, turn in that card, and see what God has for you this fall. Jesus, we love you and we th we're thankful for today's message. It was a good one, Lord, in Matthew chapter 18, learning what life in the church looks like. It looks like a bunch of people with a childlike faith, aware of the example and the influence they have over others who are concerned and care about people who are drifting and need to be brought back. It's a beautiful picture of your church because it's a picture of your love and what you did for us. So Jesus, thank you for loving us and caring for us. Thank you for teaching us. Now may your Holy Spirit move us to do what you've called us to do today. That's our prayer. And God, we ask it today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.